Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting-edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. Good to be with you guys today. Joining us on the other side of the mic is a gentleman I've been very excited to have on the show, Darren Feinstein, founder and co-chairman of Bitcoin mining firm Core Scientific, or as I call it, Core. I like to just call it Core. Keep it simple. Darren, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Frank. Uh, core, core scientific, either one's great. It's been a pleasure listening to you in the past and a pleasure to be here. But this time you get to see the face in addition to the voice, which is quite quite the treat. Uh, Darren, you're, you're a well-known entrepreneur, venture capitalist, philanthropist. You've had an interesting career, co-founded Core Scientific in 2017, and then you guys began trading Vis-a-vis -a, -vis a SPAC offering, if I believe, I don't have it in front of my notes, but if I'm recalling correctly, that is and correct. you guys, I mean, at the time of this sort of uh, market debut, it was a multi-billion dollar company. So we'll get into a bunch of different things, spanning mining, the current state of the market, and probably have you uh, tell some old war stories. First thing is, so I just started airbnb my house in Florida, and a gentleman asked to do a booking in December and asked if my pool was heated, which it is not. But then I was thinking, what if I just set up like a Bitcoin mining rig right next to the pool to heat it up? Is that something that I could, is that possible? Well, you don't want to mix the water and the Bitcoin miner. So you don't want to put it right next to it, but you could potentially exhaust into it. That would, mm -hmm. that seem, it, it would seem like a viable way to heat some amount of water. It would depend how many miners you had <laughs> and what the energy footprint of your house was. You would probably break a lot of things in trying to heat the pool. So I, I don't think I would recommend that, but uh, right. it, is interesting. it is an interesting idea. I'll shelve that idea. I know that you kind of got started in Bitcoin mining, let's say a decade ago, and it started in, in a closet or in a garage in your house. What was the what was your origin story there? 
Yeah, it started in an industrial commercial style building that we were part owners of that had some additional energy. Uh, we didn't need that much because I think I bought 30 or 40 GPUs at the time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, the genesis was I was an accountant. So my background is I was an accountant uh, and then I was a lawyer for a very short period of time. I wasn't good at either one of those working as an employee. And I ended up starting my own company. It, it was a boutique investment banking company, which mm. I somewhat still have. We specialize in distressed projects. So I would mm. buy stuff out of distressed situations, receiverships, foreclosures, litigation, whole number of crazy stories. And we would, would go you ever find, would you ever help just to clarify other companies buy distressed assets or was it just on your own sort of? Budget? I was both. So we'd either okay, be the okay. principal or we'd be participating on the capital stack, debt, equity, or LP or whatever the deal was. If we would either go in and participate or partner or operate ourselves. So got it, uh, got we, it. we looked at a variety of deals. I was a lot younger back then. So everything was interesting. And we did a lot of deals. Uh, in 2011, I have an entertainment company based in Las Vegas. What we do is we produce shows and theater mm -hmm. uh, in a number of casinos in Vegas. And the ticketing platform that I created uh, is still around. It's called TicketBat. TicketBat had a lot of problems, um, namely that if you bought a ticket in 2011 and you went to a message board about tickets, it would tell you how to get a full refund from the credit card processing company. And so we started uh -huh. looking at alternative payment methodologies on the internet. And in 2011, it was brought up to us that we should look at this new digital currency, Bitcoin. And so uh, as an accountant or lawyer, I, I Googled it and, I, and it said that people utilize this currency to buy narcotics on the internet. And that it, to me, it sounded like digital video game money. Mm -hmm. And so I dismissed it. I said, you know, I probably shouldn't be involved in this. I have privileged licenses, gaming and banking and legal. So I stayed away. But shortly thereafter, because now I'm cognizant of Bitcoin in 11, I read somewhere about the immutability of the ledger. Yeah. And as an accountant, it would caught my eye. And then I said, that's impossible. There's no such thing as an immutable ledger. That's the holy grail of accounting. The problem with all accounting is that people change the ledgers, right? You have human sure. risk on a ledger. It's either fraud or human error, right? So human risk has been a problem in every industry, every government, every bank, every single asset that has to be monitored or reported has human error associated with it. So there's so there's a need to always audit the records. And you only need to audit the records in the manner in which we do today is because all the records could be changed. And so an immutable ledger is really what they try to create in a lot of the software programs for different industries that mm -hmm. people figure out what, what you're concerned about. Let's say you own a restaurant. You're concerned yeah. with people getting into your uh, POS system, your point of sale, and altering it so items don't show up. And people are really creative about stealing. So they come up with ways to you know, not ring up five stakes and then the customer pays cash and there's no way to see that because the ledger was changed. They made the stakes, 
but then they were voided yeah. off the receipt. And that exists everything, car parts, uh, manufacturing facilities. If you go buy donuts, I mean, any, any business has a ledger. The basis for the entire world, coincidentally, are ledgers. The operating system that runs everything on the planet lives on a ledger. And so if the ledger is corruptible, then you could potentially have nothing, right? So like, how does the bank know what you own? Only because there's a ledger, right? Your money lives on a bank's ledger. And if somebody mm -hmm. corrupts that ledger or deletes you, then the bank doesn't know that you have any money. They have to audit the entire network to figure out what you have. And that could take a long time, especially if they were creative at doing that. And that's just not your money. That's your whole life. Everything yeah. could be altered on ledgers. And so the, the work is to figure out what's real and what's not, what's true, what's fake, what's false, what's an error, what's intentional. And so that's what accountants do. They're trying to figure out the numbers to make sure they're right. And yeah. overwhelmingly, they're wrong. <laughs> they're wrong. Most of the time it's from human error. And some of the time it's from fraud, human, human fraud. And so that's it. So everything runs on a ledger. Ledgers are massively important. They're really boring. Nobody wants to hear about the ledgers that run their life and the entire world for some reason. But for accountants, they're not that boring. But there's nothing more important to your life in terms of how you function every day than all of the ledgers that exist that people rely on to know where you are and what you're doing and what you own. And so anyway, so that's the ledger part. Ledgers are massively important. And ledger technology, as important as it is, right? You know how many innovations to ledgers there's been? Since the beginning of human history, something this important, right? This is, this is one of the most important areas of, of humanity. Because how do you know the truth in anything unless there's a proper ledger? So you would think there'd be innovations to this all the time, right? People always trying to improve the ledgers. If you thought that, you'd be wrong because there's only been two innovations to accounting ever in tens of thousands of years. And so- Excel? Pardon? Excel? <laughs> yeah. Excel lives on the second innovation. The first innovation was, you know, Frank went to a market Frank bought five sheep, right? So you have yeah. an asset and you wrote down five sheep, you know, whatever the sun and moon day was, you know, <laughs> 10,000 years ago. I was a big baller and, back then. In the <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you could do whatever you want with five sheep. And so now, and so now, now you, you sold a sheep and you bought two more sheep. And at some period of time, 12, 18, 24 months later, you know how many sheep you have. Yeah. And that's the birth of accounting. That's yeah. the very first accounting network system, and it's called single entry accounting. Mm -hmm. Pretty simple, right? Single entry accounting. Frank knows how many sheep or cows he has over some period of time. That lasted until the 1400s. In the 1400s, they innovated accounting and they added a debit and a credit. So they added the credit. So now you, you bought the five sheep and you paid $5. And so now you put bought five sheep, paid $5 on your T account, and you added those up over some period of time, you know, if you borrowed some money or if you paid with your own money, and at some period of time, you add all those columns up, and that would give you Frank's financial statements 
for the period of time. And that's in the 1400s. Today, 700 years later from the innovation of double entry accounting, 700 years, nothing's changed. It's the same accounting that was used in the 1400s. There's a debit and a credit. It's a double entry accounting system. And the problem with the system, you know, the, one of the biggest problems, it's a terrible system. The problem, the main problem is that you can change and alter your records anytime you want. So they're alterable records. And so yeah. the only way you, you can, can cook the books, cook the books. Right. And so here we are. And by the way, it's an analog system. You have to do it. Right. So the accounting that runs the world today, every bank, every corporation, every government is 700 years old. It's analog and it can be changed, completely alterable. And that's why you see so much fraud everywhere in every bank, every government, every corporation all over the world. A lot of them have fraud constantly and human error. And so what you get is you get an accounting system. It's really bad. That needs tens of thousands of auditors yeah. going through your records every single day to make sure that you're not doing bad things. And the problem is the benefits to the fraud people outweigh the benefits to the auditors who are limited in time and scope yeah. and don't have the same motivation. And so you get crafty, you know, very smart, sometimes criminals. And you get auditors that are auditing hundreds of companies and, and they miss it and they miss it. Yeah. And that's why you see fraud lasting for decades. So what was your aha come to Jesus moment that opened your eyes to Bitcoin being the biggest innovation in accounting technology in over 700 years? Because most people see it as an innovation in payments technology or financial technology but you saw it through the lens of an, an accounting innovation. What was the aha moment for that? Yeah, so I have a 90-minute accounting speech, and so I gave you the abbreviated version. And I know- but Was there a specific moment? Was there a specific- Yeah, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you. So, so that's the history of accounting, single entry, double entry. And yeah. so that's all I know, right? All I know was there's this system. I didn't even think it was bad. I just thought that was the only system you could ever have. And, you know, because I wasn't, I didn't think the same way that I think now. And so sure. I just thought you have double entry accounting. There's no way to change it. And everybody, every accountant, every new software that comes out tries to add a layer of immutability. They try to say, nobody can change this. You can rely on this more because it's so hard to change. What's like an example of that? Like what would be a something you'd layer on top? Like just software? Like well, like a point of sale, the easiest one to explain to me is a restaurant. So like a okay. restaurant has a point of sale system. So you go and you buy a burger. They hit, you know, Frank bought a burger. Got you it. owe $7. They print your check up. You owe $7. Now you pay them in cash and walk away. They void it. They hit the yeah. void. Yeah. Now there's Got no it. sale and they just pocket the cash. It's and not 100% so immutable. Got it. Yeah. So what? So the goal always is how do you stop people from being creative? And that's like the easiest way to commit that kind of act in a in a restaurant. There's really super complicated ones that would take hours to explain. Got so it. like the simple ones to like super super complex ones. And so how do you layer on top of double entry accounting ways for people to conduct business 
that give the owners who can't always be there some semblance that what's going on every day is being recorded and tracked. And at the end of the day, everything has to be recorded and tracked in the world where no one knows it happened, right? Like lots of things happen every day. And when they're not recorded or tracked, nobody knows they happen. And so on a business side, if there's money involved, you want everything recorded and tracked. That, you know, privacy and, and what human individual rights are is totally different than what happens inside of a business. And so you want to you track the money, that flow of cash, the flow of transactions inside a business. And so the aha moment for me was the article that said, and I wish I could find it. I've looked for it a bunch of times and, and how I ended up there. But there was an article that talked about the ledger. And I don't think they used the word immutable, but it made it sound like you couldn't change the ledger. And and I had looked at a lot of systems, especially in my business time. There's a lot of uh, operating businesses that I have that always have problems. And so when I heard that this network could be immutable and all I saw was it was such a contrarian view to like you could use it to buy drugs to like this is the best accounting ledger technology in the history of the world. I was like, let me research this a little bit more. And so I went through everything. I started reading the white paper. I read, you know, all the ancillary literature I could. And when I finished and I spent a few months on it, when I finished, I realized that it was immutable, that it really was an immutable network. And the genius of the network was the guy never talked about accounting ever. Right. It was like an accounting free white paper which is why people read it. Because if he wrote this accounting white paper, it would have been ignored by history forever, most likely. He writes Mm -hmm. a white paper about transaction rescission. And so this is how smart this guy is, or group of people, or whoever did it, is they they went to like the first principle of how do you change the accounting in the world without changing the accounting in the world. And the way they figured it out was on a transaction, if you eliminated the verified third party, so now, so they, so they took it all the way to the bottom. And then I think they went up and just said, the accounting's the root. We're going to change transactions, which you mentioned before. And the way they're going to change transactions are going to get away, get rid of this trusted third party, this Byzantine general problem issue that's existed for all of humanity, where there's no way to conduct a peer-to-peer transaction on the internet or over geographic time and space. So it's just, a, it's a much longer conversation. I know uh, we'll bore everybody with, but so he figured out, or she or group of people figured out that the way to fix the world's accounting technology and provide immutability to transactions was to fix the rescission ability of a transaction. Because now, if you have a permanent transaction, you don't need to know anything about the other side. If you have a, a transaction that could be rescinded, you need to know who the, th- who the other party is. You need to know who the intermediary is that can rescind the transaction. And you have to understand all the technical reasons that they can rescind it and what would happen if they rescinded it. And then how you can test the rescission, fight the rescission, go like the way the payment networks are today. And so they created a rescissionless transaction, which then created the immutability, which changes the accounting. And so it, it took me a few months to like, go through this rabbit hole of information, all ledger based. And I realized that there's really three yeah. 
really important concepts here. The first and the root of what this technology is, it's a new accounting technology. That's the base. The new accounting technology changes transactions. So you get, if you're looking at, you know, three layers, it's accounting and then it's transactions. And then after those two things change, it's economics. And the economics are so much more interesting than the accounting and the transactions that what you hear about 99% of the time are the economics, the theory of what's going to happen in the world if this network's adopted or used adoption rate goes up or the users go up. And so, you know, how that affects financial markets, how that affects fiat currency, how that affects any number of things. Michael Saylor, Nick Carter, you know, Lynn, all, all these people are amazing at talking about the economics associated with this network. And so when I had this moment, I was like, wow, this is real. This is an innovation that hasn't occurred in accounting uh, in 700 years. It's going to disrupt all records, anything that keeps record. Because now what you have is you have the, we talked about single entry, you have single and double entry, right? And now what this network does is you have a, a transaction between two parties. You have single, double entry counting, And then through proof of work, which is really the innovation that drove the whole thing, through proof of work, you have a consensus of computers, not stakeholders. So you have computers, so no humans. You have the first time ever consensus is done by computers where they self-audit the entire chain to its inception. And once it's been audited and agreed by all parties, it's written to a third entry, the triple entry accounting, which... Satoshi did not call a blockchain. He called a time chain. And I think that's important distinction because, first of all, blockchains were invented in 91. So they were old and Satoshi knew what they were. Uh, Second of all, the proof of work concept, he quotes, you know, cites Adam Back. And Adam Back uh, created that for Hashcash. Uh, Another woman also created something similar for email too, uh, Cynthia Dork in or working or something like that. But so you have you have this proof of work technology that audits what humans would do, self-audits the entire network, and then writes it to the time chain. Um, sure. Once it's written to the time chain, it's immutable forever. It can never be changed. You can only append it. You can add on to it. And so I knew it was real. I mean, I looked around. I said, wow, this is pretty amazing. Another word that wasn't used was miners. Miner is a stupid word. It has such a negative connotation. It represents nothing. It makes it sound so dirty, doesn't it? It's just stupid. Somebody wrote it on like a a board in 2010. You know, we'd have a lot less problems because the facts on the energy side are are distorted and wrong. I want to get into the transaction layer in a second, but I think it's just an interesting question to ask, which is actually two questions. One, what would you prefer to call them rather than miners? And two, to what degree do you think just the term miner has contributed to what appears to be a big branding issue for this entire corner of the market? I'm going to ask your second question, answer your second question first, like 90 plus percent, 90 plus percent, <laughs> because I talk to people all the time, obviously. Because well, nobody has a problem with validator. Validator sounds great. Yeah, you know? listen, I. I talk to people all the time. I ask them if they know what a miner is, representatives, elected officials, sophisticated business people. 
None of them know what it is. And what it is, is really, really simple. It's a computer server. That's all it is. A Bitcoin miner is a computer server. That's it. Just like all the computer servers that live inside of AWS, all the computer servers that live inside of Azure, all the computer servers that live inside of Equinix, they're all the same. Mm. And guess what Equinix does? They buy power from the grid and they feed it to the servers. And guess what the servers in Equinix emit? Nothing. They don't emit any pollutants. Nothing comes out of a, of a computer server. Guess how much pollution comes out of your screen in front of you? Nothing. Zero. It gets hot and then that dissipates. And the yeah. heat and the heat was stored from the elect the electricity. So it's just the same heat. And so now when you realize that a Bitcoin miner is a computer server, and just like the servers in Equinix and AWS, they live inside of a data center. And the data center buys power from the electrical grid and inside a computer server farm of Bitcoin miners inside of a building. Guess how much pollution is emitted? Zero. Nothing. There is no pollution emitted. The pollution is emitted upstream from the energy generation facility, just the same footprint as the Tesla's plugging into that electrical grid, the same footprint as your computer at your house plugged into that electrical grid. But aren't the miners going to require more energy from the grid than those other objects you're referring to? Well, if you look at it globally, no, no. Tumble dryers in the United States use more energy than Bitcoin miners globally. Christmas lights use more energy than Bitcoin miners globally. And the big misconception is People don't really understand energy either, right? And people don't understand energy or electricity. They don't realize they're not the same. They conflate them all the time. I'm going to tell you this. So, that, so this is yeah. part of the Bitcoin Mining Council stuff, but this is the same information I've talked about for a long time. And we've talked earlier about some of the uh, journalists. The, these journalists say the same thing, all of them, that dislike this network. And, and it's dishonest. For them to do this, but this is what they do. They say Bitcoin mining is so bad, so bad for the world. We need to we need to shut the network off. It uses more energy than a small country, right? More energy than a small country. The Netherlands, sure. right? New Zealand. I think they used Afghanistan the other day. And so they compare the global energy use to a small country. The problem with that, Frank, is that you need context. You need a framework. Like, what does that mean? How much energy does this network use? How much energy is in the world? What, like, how bad is it? And we know how much energy is generated globally. And, you know, energy is a little bit complicated, but this stat is really easy to understand. Yeah. And this is super important for the industry. Everybody who's in this industry should understand the stat because everybody asks about the energy footprint. And the stat is so easy. British Petroleum, Exxon, every single energy provider that generates energy globally, they put out how much energy they generate. They all do. And they all agree on how much energy is generated globally every year. So available for use, energy. That amount of energy is 160,000 approximately terawatt hours 
of energy is generated every year. And so that number is so important to understand. You don't need to understand what a terawatt hour is, just that everywhere in the world generates 160,000 terawatt hours of energy a year. That's the maximum that you could use in the world today. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, ceritanium, and titanium aluminide. This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe white and woodland green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. The question that should be asked is, is this important to you? So to your point, dryers use more energy, Christmas lights, and those things are not you so know, talked about ad nauseum in the, in the press. The people, yeah. So, so is there value in the network? If there's value, then the energy use is good. Now I agree. So as a Bitcoin person, I agree that the use of the energy is positive. The problem is explaining the value of this network takes a long time. And so I do both. Number one, I could explain the value of the network through my accounting talk and through the transaction talk. I'm not really good at the economic talk. But number two, and, and people say, oh, you don't need to explain how much energy there is. But you do. We live in- No, a, I think you we, do, yeah. yeah we, we live in an environment where people are concerned about energy. So let's talk about it. Because by the way, the statistics- are ridiculously on our side. And so let me give you the, the, final, the final of this, right? So now you know how much energy is generated globally, right? Do you remember that number? That, this In is so, total. It's 160,000 terawatt hours total, right? Mm -hmm. That's the number. That's the bogey. That's how much is available in the world. Like no more than that. It would be really, it, you know, it takes years to build the generation facilities and all the rest. So there's 160,000 sure. terawatt hours available. When I was building a facility in the Appalachian Mountains in 2016-17, so five years ago, right? I, I went from the basement to an industrial <laughs> enterprise-grade facility, right? So I'm building this 230,000-square-foot facility in 2017 on 70 acres. And I have the mayor involved and the city council and investors and partners and my chairman, who is my co-founder, Mike Levitt. And... So now I'm building all this stuff. I'm giving everybody all of the information about Bitcoin. And our buddies at the World Economics Forum, they write an article. The article says that the Bitcoin network is really bad and we needed to shut it off. But it's really bad because of its energy footprint. Mm -hmm. You want to know what they said the energy footprint was? 
literally, quote, they said by 2020, it's 2017, by 2020, the Bitcoin network, and this is the first article on my Twitter, it's like pinned, the 2020. More energy than the entire world. All the world's energy. This network will consume all of the world's energy, all of it by 2020. We have three years before the world. Till mayhem. Yeah, it's over. It's like Mad Max. Everyone's going to kill everyone. There's a funny video with it in China where the guy's like, do you know what happens if Bitcoin gets adopted? You're all going to die. Everyone's going <laughs> to die. And so like it was like one of those things. It was like insane. Yeah. And so now they're all calling me saying, we can't, what, do you, what, what are we doing? We're destroying the planet. We're going to use all the world's energy. This is insane. We need to stop. And I'm like, well, let's just take a breather here and let's discuss yeah. what they actually mean. And so then Newsweek piled on, you know, Newsweek writes an article saying Bitcoins can use all the world's energy. And then 10,000 other articles come out. So I'm like, I'm getting beat up, right? And so here we are today in 2022, 2022. Mm -hmm. Two years after the World Economic Forum said the world was going to end because of the Bitcoin network's energy use. Two years after, right? And so if we know the energy available today and pretty close back then is 160,000 terawatt hours of energy, you would think we're using pretty close to all of it, right? Because they said sure. we'd be using all of it. So we got to be using a big percentage of it. How big is the percentage? Like how good are these analysts at the World Economic Forum that they would put out articles like this? How good are they at predicting the future? And you would think they'd be good because they have trillions of dollars with the IMF and they, they got, they're making all types of important decisions. So you would think they're good at this. And so we know how much energy is used by the Bitcoin network today. We know, even the detractors of the network agree that the amount is, out of the 160,000 terawatt hours, the amount is approximately 250 terawatt hours out of 160,000. Mm. Two years after the Armageddon prediction, that. That means the Bitcoin network uses about 10 to 16 basis points of the world's energy. Yeah. That's 10 to 16 one hundredths of a percent of the world's energy. Yeah. They were 99.989% <laughs> wrong over seven years. And so over five years. And so the narrative that the Bitcoin network Globally, there's a big difference between global power and local power. The global footprint of the Bitcoin network is inconsequential. It means nothing. If you shut off 10 or 16 basis points of the world's energy, 10 one hundredths of a percent, literally nothing will happen. And nothing will happen for two important reasons. One, out of the 160,000 terawatt hours that are generated every year, guess how much are wasted? 50,000, oh, 50,000 terawatt Tons. hours of energy are wasted every year. It's renewable stranded that just dissipates Yeah, or, or it's transmission line loss or energy into electricity loss. We're burning through 50,000 terawatt hours of energy every year that's wasted. And the Bitcoin network uses 250 total terawatt hours. And guess yeah. what's on the front page of every 
article, every newspaper, every environmental cause, the global footprint of the Bitcoin network using 16 basis points of the world's energy. I mean, there are real, important, devastating environmental criminal acts that take place every day in our world's waterways, in the air. There's Tiger King. Tiger King, right? Lead in everything. I mean, there are massive problems all over the world. And to divert any energy towards this network that uses 10 to 16 basis points of the world's energy is intellectually dishonest. And it's usually because people gave them money to look at this network. So the global footprint, inconsequential. It's unarguably inconsequential. Nobody could argue that it is. So you get this massive narrative that's just fake and false. And the facts are 100% on the side of us, on the side of people that are pro this technology. Local, local energy is a problem. If there's not enough energy generated to support yeah. Bitcoin mining facility or a data center from AWS or a car manufacturing facility or an aluminum smelter or a you name it. If the grid can't support additional power, you shouldn't build anything there until they have it in the community there so you don't disrupt people's lives. So on a local level, power is massively important. And if you make a bad decision, you're going to disrupt people's lives, civilians and yeah. residential civilians and industrial people. And it's terrible. And people do in all industries. You know, people are bad actors all over. So on a on a macro level, it has zero impact. It's fairly inconsequential, but there are these local examples in which it might weigh too much on a given power grid or on a given region. You, Absolutely. You somewhere like that's Texas. A, yeah, that's example. 100%. Like it's, it 100% does. And so anything would. Any, any, transmission lines take a long time to put down. Energy generation facilities take years uh, to build. And so any business, any business that requires energy, needs to be a good corporate citizen and make sure the energy is there and you're not disrupting the ecosystem around it sure. when you go build. And so local level, yeah, it's 100% important. People conflate local and global, right? Mm -hmm. And so really when we form the Bitcoin Mining Council, I just care about this one statistic. People need to know on a global level, it's inconsequential. It's, it's inarguably inconsequential because most of the energy that would, is utilized, would be, any of the renewable energy would be wasted. And so you get this inconsequential footprint with a disproportionate amount of attention. And you have to ask yourself why, what's it disrupting? And the reason is it disrupts the world because you now have a permanent accounting ledger that nobody can manipulate. You can't commit fraud on it. You can't alter it. You can't claim human error. The records are the records. It's the first time, Frank, in human history, you have truth on chain. Ever. So you're going back to the value that you see in Bitcoin from the accounting perspective. Let's maybe move up the chain, no pun intended, to the transaction level, or maybe I'd call it the, the payments level. This is a little bit more thorny. I think most people would, would agree with you on the accounting level beyond Bitcoin. I'm talking about like the crypto world as a whole, but maybe might not see the value in it as a payments network per se. We saw FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried getting a bit of heat from, from the Bitcoin community for saying that it doesn't necessarily work 
or scale as a payments network. He kind of stepped back from those comments and said he was taken out of context, which he probably was. Or not. Listen, there's a lot of confusion. Because you have to understand the accounting layer to really understand the transactional layer, the people that talk about the transactional layer have a lot of confusion. in it. And so you really have to get to the root of transactions. Okay? But why would merchants want to use it? Like if I go back to the restaurant example that you give, we're not seeing a lot of adoption among restaurants or other merchants. So I like history. I like history. If you want me to bore you again with a short historical reference, uh, I think it's easier to explain sure. my position. And I, I'm sure you have uh, thought about this for, you know, thousands of hours, it sounds like. So the a thousand years ago, we yeah. don't know each other. Darren and Frank, we want to conduct business. Okay. I want to send you some value. If I'm in Asia and you're in Europe, okay, thousand years ago, I send you value, okay? You don't get anything. You get nothing, right? So what do you say? You say, you send me something, you say, I didn't get anything yeah. from you. You're a scumbag. But I sent it. I sent it. And so now I believe you're a scumbag. And so because we're separated by geographic space and time, me and you cannot conduct business with each other because there's no way for us to know if you're a bad actor or not. This is my version of the Byzantine general problem. The Byzantine general problem, there's like thousand page textbooks on it. I just break it down into geographic space, two people. And so there's no way for me and you to conduct business over geographic space or time a thousand years ago. It's impossible. And so guess what popped up? A third party verification system. I send the value to the third party verification system. Mm -hmm. They said Feinstein sent it, right? You say, great. And now they can send it to you if you want. Transaction culminated, right? That's a transaction. Only available now for the first time in human history over geographic space and time because of a third-party verification system. That third-party verification system's root function, confirming transactions. Guess what that turned into? Mm -hmm. A bank. That's what banks, all banks, Genesis, are confirming transactions between two parties and they charge a fee, okay? And so now, what is the bank layer on top of me and you sending each other value? Well, I sent a million dollars to the third-party verification system. Do you want the bank to send it to your house? No. No. You ask them to custodian it, okay? So the bank custodians the money. That's what a bank does. Those are the two root functionalities. In today's age, right, through the Federal Reserve, which is coincidentally owned by the banks, you're now allowed to borrow nine times the amount of your reserves and lend it out. And so now you have this million dollars in the reserves. They borrow nine million. They lend it out to people and they're taking the spread. Now, all of this relies on one thing that means you cannot conduct a transaction with each other over geographic time and space. It's impossible. Until the Bitcoin network, Okay, now for the first time ever, me and you send each other, I send you a Bitcoin, you see it's in my wallet, you see it's on chain, you see it written to the time chain immutably, I see you got it, transaction culminated. That's the first time in human history, two people, peer-to-peer -peer transaction yeah. is available. It's but never from a been merchant perspective, before. people don't want to spend their Bitcoin. Yep, We're, you're, you're getting too far. You're getting too far ahead. 
but just let me go down this path. With sure. You, okay. So now for the first time in human history, we have a peer-to-peer transaction that doesn't rely on any human, no stakeholders in the middle. And so it doesn't matter where you are in the world, cross-border payments within 10 minutes with no human risk of error or fraud instantaneously within 10 minutes in your account without a rescission ability, okay? So you have this, you have a digital asset in your wallet that no one can seize, no one can confiscate, right? That's there is yours now. Nobody can touch it, okay? So now you have this Bitcoin in your wallet and you have a final settled transaction. And so what you hear all the time, okay? So now that we have that down, right? So you have this final settled transaction that no one can ever take from you. What you hear all the time is the Bitcoin network is so slow, it can only do four to seven transactions per second or 10, whatever, like somewhere around four to seven transactions per second, right? Certainly not millions. Four to seven transactions per second. Visa, you know, it depends where you look. Visa says it can do 1,700 to X number of transactions per second, right? And so Visa can do all these transactions. And so people are like, Bitcoin does four to seven. Visa does 1,700. This is ridiculous. Bitcoin can't scale. Bitcoin's stupid. The problem with that, the problem with that is this. Bitcoin final settles four to seven transactions per second, okay? Transaction over. Visa final settles zero, zero transactions per second. If it's Friday, and I use my Visa card and you own a restaurant, you're not getting the money until Monday or Tuesday. So Mm. five days later, you get the money. I get my bill in 30 days, okay? Guess what? I disagree with the charge. I have another 60 days to contest it. 120 days later, Visa rips the money out of your account, which happens all the time, and says, Fuck you, Frank Chaparro. File a grievance. Mm-hmm. You could have had four to seven transactions final settled in your account done. If it's important, that's what you want. Or you can go through a third party verification system the old way and have 20,000 visa employees on every continent on the planet with CEOs, bankers, lawyers, lobbyists telling you that you're not getting your money. And so you cannot compare a final settled transaction on the Bitcoin network with a credit system that's a stakeholder-led CEO-run business. It's impossible. They don't do the same thing. And so, yes, is Bitcoin going to compare with Visa? No, it's not. They don't do the same thing. But if you're in China and I'm in Germany. Yeah. How do you want me to send you money? Yeah. You want to wait 10 minutes and get it on the Bitcoin network and not send it through the wire system and have a bunch of banks tell you they're going to take the money out of your checking account. Same thing with Western Union. Same thing with any of these things. Once they get a hold of your money, it's out of your hands and it's in a stakeholder run system and anything can happen to it. And so... What you're talking about when you talk about Visa is a layer two on top of the rails of another financial system. 
and what they're building on Lightning and what they're going to build on all types of products on top of Bitcoin are going to be these transaction layers. And guess what? The layer one on Bitcoin is the only one that has no stakeholder reliability issues. There's no human fraud, human error risk. You're not at the mercy of the founders. There's no founders you're at the mercy of. You're not living at the benevolence of a bunch of people that could dictate whether or not you get your money. And so there is nothing comparable to this network that's ever been invented in humanity. And so what do you want? Do you want the money or do you want a bunch of people telling you can't have the money? And so you just go through that. It's uh, on a transaction level. It's the first time ever that you've had this ability. And and then what you build on top of it will be lightning, you know, strike, you know, Jack Mahler's has amazing products. You know, there's a lot of people that are going to do a really amazing technology on top of this, on top of this layer one, Bitcoin. Anybody who's building on top of another layer one technology, right? Guess what you're at the mercy of? The founders, the founders of that layer one, right? They control it. And so if you're going to spend tens, hundreds of millions of dollars building technology, you want to build it on Bitcoin. You want to build it on Bitcoin because Bitcoin's not at the mercy of the founders making a bad decision, which guess what? They do all the time. And so anytime you have a founder run company, not just in digital asset space in the world, in the life, it's not just digital asset founders, the success rate for founders is under 10%, it's it's 90 plus percent fail. So so you're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a founder run layer two, layer one project when you could build it on top of Bitcoin and have no founder risk? No, you wouldn't unless you own the, the layer one. If you own the layer one, then you're a founder and you're trying to create revenue and you're trying to sell your coins and create liquid. You know, you know, you're yeah. trying to create the people that could could buy your coins. Right. You know, so they, yeah. like, you just can't compare all these things. And the base root of all of it is accounting. It's all accounting. We haven't talked about economics at all, and I prefer not to. These are just- We'll have to save that for part two. But that's not my area. Michael Saylor does it better than anyone in the world. You got Nick Carter's amazing economics. You know, it's all theory, right? It's theory. Nick is great. We'll have to get him on the show at some point. So what about what about the landscape for miners right now? That's maybe where we can close the show. Was that helpful, by the way? Was all that helpful? Very that was very, no, very, you know, we've never had, I think it's interesting. We've tried to have on many different founders behind some of the various layer ones. We've had Avalanche, we've had Polkadot, we've, we've even had um, Vitalik on the show, but we can't have Satoshi. So no one's come on and kind of given a, a rundown of, of what is important about Bitcoin. And so I think this is pretty valuable to our listeners because we haven't really done it before. But The other thing that I think everyone's interested in, especially as more and more of these companies come to the United States, is the landscape for Bitcoin miners. And you've seen different cycles, different down cycles, halvenings. What is the state of the Bitcoin mining industry right now? I've heard when we had um, Mr. Fred Thiel on a few episodes ago saying that things are actually not looking that bad. You'd have to get to around $6,500 a coin where at that point, you know, things might get a little shaky. So it's interesting, and and I'm not the expert, you are. 
despite this market calamity, miners seem to be doing okay. Is that fair? It depends, right? It depends. There's there's a lot of miners that are not going to do okay. And there's some miners that are going to be just fine. So the state of the industry, it looks like the state of the industry for the last decade. There's people that are well prepared for the down cycles and there's people that are not. Uh, in 2017, we had the down cycle of 18. There's a confusion on the types of Bitcoin miners. They're not all sure. the same. In Bitcoin mining in 2018, I look at the infrastructure side. So the people that are building the data centers, those are Bitcoin miners. The people that are buying machines and sending them somewhere else, that's, you know, I don't know what that, they think they call it the asset light business model. You know, you're, you're buying a commodity and you're hoping to time the market. And so the people that have these asset light business models that are buying machines without the ability to control them themselves, they have a lot of problems historically in sure. down cycle because they don't control their destiny, right? They don't get turned on right. The infrastructure provider could go out of business if they're not handling their finances, right? There's a lot of risk, variable risk. When I started mining in 2012, after I got to scale, I had to send my equipment all over the US. I sent equipment to Washington State. I sent equipment to Georgia. I sent equipment, I had equipment in Nevada. I sent equipment everywhere. And guess what happened? What? None of it worked. The efficiencies <laughs> were bad. The buildings would burn down or catch on fire. The equipment would get stolen. You know, we had every problem you could have. And so I realized in 2016, I said, this is all I want to work on. I want to work on this full time. This is going to change the world. There's human rights and individual freedom uh, conversations I'm sure you've had before. I could talk about it for a long time. But uh, I decided I'm going to do this in my life. And so I moved to the Appalachian Mountains just to work on this and build the first enterprise-grade facility. And I did that because there were no enterprise-grade facilities. And to get to scale was impossible because nobody knew how to properly run this equipment back then. It's really complicated now. The heat signature is different than traditional data center equipment. And so there's no book at MIT that you go through to become an engineer, a thermodynamic engineer that has this math. And so the engineers all have problems dissipating the heat signature from this equipment. Sure. And so it's a complicated industry to run the equipment properly, to build the infrastructure properly. And so the people that have built infrastructure data centers for this equipment that did it on well capitalized with looking to the future, having gone through ups and downs, right? If you're brand new, you're nine months in, you've been in the space nine months and you've spent all this money and you're like, oh, wow, how could it go down 80%? Well, it always goes down 80%, right? It's, yeah. It always goes up three, four, five, 10X, and then it falls 80%, right? And then everyone's shocked. Oh my God, it fell, you know, I started buying Bitcoin really, you know, under $100 and went up and it fell 80%. And my friends were like, ooh, you just got crushed. And I'm like, it went up 400%. So it's like, I'm fine. And even yeah. the next time it did it, you know, they're like, Ooh, it just fell 50%. I'm like, <laughs> you're like do you, can you not it's what do it does? Math? It is what you it is. The, yeah, you got to do the math. It's a higher low. It's a higher low and higher high. And so the Bitcoin mining will be fine. The people that have protected themselves will weather the storm. You'll see contraction in the industry. You'll see the people that just bought a lot of machines uh, with a business model that said they were worth a billion dollars because they own 20,000 machines. And they're all going to go away. But, you know, that's just 
the nature of this beast. I mean, they could have timed it if they had bought the machines in 2020 in, you know, August, they would have made mm-hmm. 10x their money. And so if you're buying it as a commodity, if you're buying the stuff as a commodity, you're beholden to the cycles of the stock market and, you know, every all the other fiat financial disorder. What do you think is the biggest headwind for miners that do control their own destiny and kind of, you know, have control over their machines? Is it energy use? Is it getting inventory? It's the same thing it's always been. It's fine. No, you can get everything. Okay. The only thing that the real bottleneck is infrastructure. You can buy machines. There's power all over the world. There's lots of land. Everything exists except infrastructure, which takes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to build and hundreds of people to run and really complicated software to monitor. The only bottleneck in the entire industry is the data center. And it's a data center business like Mm -hmm. this. Bitcoin mining thing, it's a server inside of a data center. All the only business we're in, we're building data centers. We're building data centers and we can host Bitcoin mining machines. And so we're in the data center business and the shortage is data centers. There's not a lot. There's there's not enough. Yeah. And so they're making way more equipment, right? Three, four, five, ten X. I don't know how what it is, uh, then you can plug in. And so everybody just buys the equipment and they're like, We're billionaires. We just bought 10,000 miners. We're rich. It's yeah. like, well, how's that work? But is it, listen, this is a long game, right? Yeah. That you can't pop into this thing and make hundreds of millions of dollars in 18 months. This is, you know, we've been grinding it out for 10 years, <laughs> right? Just growing organically the right way for 10, you know, core scientific since uh, 17. Yeah. It's very interesting. I know that we can't necessarily ask like what you're most excited about at the company specifically because we can't do, you know, the forward looking type yeah, of I'm stuff. A, I'm the, you know what? I'm out of ops as you know, and I can, yeah. I can say that because that's public knowledge. I have nothing to do with operations or finance or any of that stuff. All I am today is I'm the chief vision officer, mm-hmm. which they came up with. I don't even know what it means, <laughs> but that means I get to come on and talk to Frank on his podcast. That's what my title should be. That's going to be my next title upgrade. Well, maybe just broadly then, what are you most excited about in the market generally? Listen, I think the most important thing is education. This network is not intuitive. People don't understand what it is and you're bombarded with misinformation. So this technology provides because of the immutable digital asset that gets transacted in your wallet. It provides private property for the first time to 8 billion people on the planet. And it also provides banking because now you have a digital asset that's unseizable and you can um, you can remit money and you can transact payments mm-hmm. on it, which is a bank. And so now what half the world's population doesn't have banking and 87% of the population or 50% live in autocratic or authoritarian regimes with no private property, and another 30 to 37% have double or triple digit inflation. So you're looking at 7 billion people every night that go to sleep, not knowing if their money is still going to be there so they can feed their families. And so this technology, while interesting and important to us here in America, we're 4% of the population, right? 330 million people out of 8 billion people. We're not the target audience of this. The target audience are the 7 billion people that have problems every day. And so how do you get this technology into their hands? How do you give them this? And the problem is 
they're bombarded by people saying, and they're really smart, the marketing people that are opposed to Bitcoin, they're smart, right? They're good at marketing. They're getting stronger. They them, yes. They tell them it's bad for the environment. It's going to destroy the world and use all the energy. And guess who's disproportionately hurt by, by pollution yeah. and folks environmental in, problems? In, yeah. people, the poor people. The same people that are going to benefit the most from this technology are the most affected by real-time actual air land and sea pollution, right? And so they're telling them it's so bad for the environment that they don't even want to touch it because they just heard it's going to affect them first. And so you really have to educate people. We have to, you have to find a way to bring this technology to the world. And so in 2017, when I was building the facility I talked about with you, the Appalachian one, there were 2.7 yeah. million people on the network. Today, there's over 100 million, right? And so the adoption's grown at record pace. The trajectory is off the charts, you know, faster than the internet. The question is, how do we continue this outside of the Western world to the people that need it the most? And so education is critically important, both what this provides and addressing all the fun. You know, you get the, you get the energy one, you get the illicit activity one, which by the way, on an accounting level, that's the easiest way to answer the, the illicit activity one, two, in really short form. You just say, listen, if you're going to commit a crime, you don't want to do it on an immutable ledger that's going to track the that's criminal activity there. forever. Yeah. You want to use cash. Yeah. You want to use cash because no one's tracking. And so anyway, you have to educate people on, on the FUDs, the energy, illicit activity. There's a whole host of them. They've changed over the years. And uh, you have the FUD education and you have the benefit education. But at the end of the day, you need really good developers building on this technology because it's similar to AOL, you know, like the internet, when you had AOL, you had to plug in a disc and, you know, dial up onto the WWW and nobody could make it work. It took too long. It was too slow. Everybody said it would fail, right? Paul Klugman said the internet would fail. Newsweek said the internet would fail. Wired said the internet would fail. Everybody said the internet would fail. And it's the most important thing in the world that democratized information. Well, this democratizes economics and accounting and money for the world. It's going to survive all of it because nobody can turn it off. And so the question is, who's going to build the Amazons and the layer twos on top of this that are going to change the world? And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it's happening in a record pace. We're just in the middle of it. So it doesn't seem as fast. So education and building on this network are going to be super important. You know, you talk to anybody, whether it's how many people are on the internet? Five, six, seven billion people. Ask them how the internet works. It doesn't know. matter. I don't even know. I don't know. I didn't have to learn how the internet works because I could just plop on the internet. Well, that's what's going to happen with this. These layer twos, they're going to take all of this whole conversation we just had. We're going to make it irrelevant, right? They're going to make it irrelevant. You're going to need to know accounting, transaction, yeah. Byzantine general problem. You're just going to have democratized monetary technology that's unseizable, that lives in your wallet, that you can use to bank. And it'll be a whole different ballgame. Darren, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, once again, we've been joined today by our guests, Darren Feinstein, founder of Core Scientific and chief visionary officer. Where can our listeners learn more about you? Where can they follow you maybe on Twitter? I'm on Twitter. My name, Darren Feinstein. That's it. Perfect. I, you know, listen, I'm not a prolific Twitterer. I, I think since... 2015 or four, whenever I joined, I have 600 tweets, but there's some good ones. There's some, all of the facts that I talked about today are on my Twitter. Perfect. So all of the energy statistics 
even the illicit activity stuff, the proof of work, proof of stake information is on my Twitter. You can all pull that up. I think it's helpful. Also, the Bitcoin Mining Council website uh, has a lot of literature also on some of the FUDs that we deal with every day. And, uh, and so those are the two best places. Proof of Darren. All right, sir. Proof of, I'm, I'm here. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. The Scoop will be back with you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.